Welcome to All Caring Conversations. Your health and wellness matters. I'm your host, Tracy Dawn Brewer. On today's episode, we have Dr. Johnson from the Altman Sleep Lab. Dr. Johnson shares some high-level insight on sleep conditions, helpful hints on getting good sleep, and his insight on everything from naps to sleep quality. We know you'll find this interesting and informative and encourage you to look into meeting with the Altman Sleep Lab if you feel the need to seek medical help regarding your sleep. Welcome to a new episode of Alt Caring Conversations. Today we have Dr. Johnson with us. And Dr. Johnson is an internist, primary care medical director, and sleep lab medical director with Altman. And Dr. Johnson, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about your time with Altman and your path to being the director of the Altman Sleep Lab? By all means, and uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. So I've been uh, with Altman uh, for over 30 years, mostly as a practicing internist. And now for the past 15 or 20 years, I've been the medical director of the primary care physicians, and also for about the same length of time, the medical director of Altman Sleep Lab. Um, That started over 20 years ago when Altman was first trying to decide if they wanted to have a sleep lab. They asked me to head up a committee to see if we should make the decision to go ahead with it or not, and we did. And I became very interested in sleep medicine then. And when uh, when Altman did have their sleep lab in place, they asked me to be medical director, and I've been medical director ever since. I'm also happy to have your insight on sleep. Um, while we were preparing for today, you shared that you're always looking for ways to encourage better sleep. So I'm really glad to offer this episode for our listeners for that very reason. And you mentioned never underestimate the importance of eight hours of sleep. Where did that number originate? So that number has been around for a long time. It's thought that adults over the age of 18 really need seven to nine hours of sleep, maybe seven to eight hours once you get older, like older than 50 or 65. So there have been committees that of sleep experts that have reviewed the hundreds and hundreds of articles on the benefits of sleep and have come up with the fact that getting seven to nine hours of sleep is best. And what these articles Uh, talk about aren't just feeling good during the day and less sleepy and more alert, but there's all these other functions of of, uh, the body that seem to improve with seven to nine hours of sleep. And we'll talk about these a little bit more later in the podcast. A lot of them fall under three categories, either heart disease, depression, and problems with your immune system. So I think the immune system is actually one of the most uh, uh, interesting and important. Um, And it's not, the immune system is involved not just with fighting infection, but it's also involved with fighting cancer. And there's some uh, evidence that certain types of cancer, like breast cancer and prostate cancer and colon cancer, are more likely to occur in people that don't get enough sleep. So there's really like two main categories of needing seven to nine hours of sleep. One is so you feel good and you have plenty of energy, but the other is all these medical diseases that over time can occur if you don't get enough sleep. Wow. Yeah. Those are some amazing benefits. I didn't know about that at all. So that's very interesting. And for some of us, 
that maybe can't get those seven to nine hours, can we really catch up on sleep? So the answer is yes and no, but mostly no. So there was an interesting study that I think highlights this. Well, first of all, from your own practical experience, if you if you normally get seven hours of sleep and you pull an all-nighter, like most of us who are physicians have had to do over time and others as well, and you don't get any sleep one night, you don't get 14 hours the next night. So it's not like you can, you can completely, you know, catch up and make up for it. Okay. So you don't really, you know, catch up. But the question is, do you, do you have to? And the answer is, I think, highlighted in a study where they took people that only got five hours of sleep every night, five hours of sleep year in, year out. And they had an increased mortality of over 60%. So when you look at these people over time, they really had more death than people that got longer sleep. And then they looked at people who were able to catch up, so to speak, on the weekend. So during the week when they, their work week, when they can only sleep five hours, they slept the five hours, but then they slept longer on the weekends to catch up. And what happened to them is that the increase in mortality, the increase in death was much, much less, but they weren't as healthy. They had more diabetes, they had more heart disease, they had more depression. Um, so they were in some ways better, better but by, by, by being able to catch up over the weekends, but they were still less healthy. Okay. That's so interesting. So even the weekend catch up a little bit better, but still it's that steady everyday sleep is what you're, you're getting at. <laughs> right. And the way I like to look at it is that, um, you know, a lot of people think they can get away with six hours of sleep. You know, some people even five hours of sleep and they feel good and they think they're fine. But it's a little bit like someone saying, hey, I only need to exercise two minutes a day. Well, you probably do have to. That's fine. You can exercise two minutes a day. You're not going to be as healthy as you exercise 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day. And I think it's the same thing. If you, if you can get by and feel halfway decent on five or six hours of sleep, fine. But you're not going to be as healthy as if you sleep longer. You're making such a great point. That's, that's a good analogy, too. <laughs> OK, so let's talk a little bit about nap. Are those beneficial? And if you could give us kind of like a length of a good nap, do you have a number? So if you don't get enough sleep at night, taking naps are very uh, acceptable. And I think the key to taking a nap is that it's not too long, it's not too late, and it's not too often. So what's really recommended is about a 15 or 20 minute nap early in the afternoon and just one nap a day because otherwise it's going to interfere with your sleep at night. Mm -hmm. If you take a nap too late, it's, it's going to interfere with your sleep at night too long, or if you take multiple naps. But if you're tired, there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking, you know, a 15 or 20 minute nap, you know, in the early afternoon. Yeah, just to recharge. It's not much time, but yeah, it must, you know, help a little bit. So that's, that's a good number. That's, that's something we can handle. So let's talk about the quality of sleep. What's considered poor sleep and what are the deleterious effects of poor sleep? So I think there's several ways to think about poor sleep. First of all, what would good sleep be? Um, good sleep would be, you know, seven to eight hours and getting the right um, types of sleep in terms of the different stages. So there's, I think most people know, there's several different stages of sleep. We call them stage one, stage two, stage three, and REM sleep. Mm. Stage one and two are light sleep, and stage three is deep sleep, 
and then there's REM sleep where we dream. And you should have a fairly normal distribution of these different stages. You know, for if you don't have any REM sleep, that's not good. If you don't have any deep sleep, that's not good. So um, poor sleep would be if you don't get the right kind of makeup of the different stages. Also poor sleep would be if you wake up during the night. So for instance, if you have sleep apnea, it keeps kind of almost waking you up at night and it keeps interrupting um, your sleep and it's poor sleep. And obviously getting not getting enough sleep would be poor sleep. Wow. Yeah. So interruptions in those stages, there's just a lot <laughs> to, to consider. And it's interesting that you uh, mentioned those stages that you're in those stages. The only way that I can look at it is that my watch tells me you've been, and I don't know if those are very accurate, but it's just very interesting when you have a fitness watch and it kind of measures your sleep and you see, wow, you know, I was in this for 45 minutes or something like that. So it's very interesting that you can, you know, describe those stages to everyone. So that's that's one of the problems with with the fitness watches. I have one and you don't know if it's accurate or not. Right. <laughs> you kind of hope it's accurate, but you have no way of really knowing. Yeah. And what, does, what the stage is supposed to be is that REM sleep is supposed to be between 20 and 25% of the night. Mm. Deep sleep is supposed to be about 20% of the night. And the light sleep, the rest of it, which is 50% or a little bit more than 50%. Wow. Okay. That's so interesting to hear that breakdown. And you had mentioned sleep apnea being a contributor to poor uh, quality sleep a moment ago. Can you define sleep apnea for our listeners? So sleep apnea occurs when your muscles of your neck relax to the point where they block off the flow of air. And often the tongue often goes back and helps block off the flow of air. So you can't breathe. Usually you sleep through it. You're not aware of it. It's related to snoring because if the back of the throat closes off partially, you snore. It closes off all the way it's sleep apnea. So most people who have sleep apnea also snore because it's all part of the same process and it disrupts your sleep. You think you're sleeping through it, but, and you are, but it interrupts your sleep. So you're not getting deep sleep. You're not getting REM sleep. You're not getting the kind of sleep you need. Um, so most of the people that have sleep apnea snore and they're tired during the day because they got lousy sleep at night because of the sleep apnea. Wow. And I know that that is a condition that we hear a lot about, but I'm sure there's some others. Um, Can you describe some other sleep conditions that we need to be aware of? So probably for every, uh, you know, 10 people that have a sleep problem, you know, maybe five or six of them have sleep apnea, two or three of them have not enough sleep. And then maybe there's one or two that have some of the other ones. So having not enough sleep and sleep apnea are the main ones. But there's some other ones that I'll just briefly mention without really getting into it too much. One is insomnia, which a lot of people have, especially as you get older. There's one called restless leg syndrome, where people at night, when they're trying to get to sleep, have this creepy, crawly feeling in their legs, and they have to keep moving their legs around, and it interrupts them from falling asleep. There's narcolepsy, which is often a genetic neurological disease where your brain doesn't make this specific uh, neurotransmitter, this specific chemical that keeps people awake and alert. And people with narcolepsy are falling asleep during the day, uh, falling asleep while driving, Um, but there's relatively good treatment for it. And there's one last one that isn't that common, but I think it's really interesting. It has to do with REM sleep. Now, REM sleep is when we dream 
and we're built so we don't act out our dreams. Like you don't want to be dreaming about getting into a fight and punching the person sleeping next to you or dreaming about a football game and getting out of the bed and, you know, kicking something in the room. So we're basically paralyzed during REM sleep. So we're, we're, the breathing muscles aren't paralyzed and your eye muscles aren't paralyzed because REM is rapid eye movement, your eyes are moving, but almost all the other muscles are paralyzed. And this REM behavior disorder occurs when the other muscles are not paralyzed and you act and you actually act out your dreams. So people start calling out, people get out of bed like they're part of their dream. And um, it could be pretty scary. It's usually not serious. Occasionally it can be associated with other medical illnesses and there's pretty good treatment for it. So if you um, know, if you do have this or if somebody you know has this, you know, it, 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 the, the main problem is danger to you, to the person or to somebody else in the room. You know, there's, there's, there's pretty good uh, medical treatment for this. Wow. That, that's quite a list. And I'm glad that you're available to discuss these concerns with, because there's a lot that I didn't, you know, know about or ever heard before. So this is interesting for our listeners to, to learn about these. And I think we're, I guess, assuming um, this is regular, you know, day to night sleeping. What about for uh, people that work on third shift or night shifts? Do you have suggestions for sleeping during those non-traditional hours? And so a lot of this is in the medical field. You know, a lot of nurses and even physicians, you know, uh, are working, you know, night shifts. So there's, you know, certain things that people can do. One is strategically taking a nap. You know, if you know you're going to be going in at 11 o'clock at night, you know, take, you know, a half an hour nap or so at nine o'clock to try to, you know, feel rested. Um, having bright light uh, promotes being awake. So if you're going to be working a night shift, try to have the place where you're, where you're working really well lit up at night. And the opposite is true also. Like when you come home, a lot of people have trouble sleeping in the morning because it's the morning. It's, you know, 9 a.m. And now you, this is when you're supposed to sleep. So on the way home and when you get home, you try not to have bright light. You keep the lights dim, you wear sunglasses, because the more light you're exposed to, the more stimulated your brain is and the harder it is to fall asleep. So bright light when you're at work to try to stay awake, you know, dim, dim lighting, you know, if you can on the way home and at your house until, you know, you fall asleep. There's uh, medications that sometimes we use to try to keep people more alert at night if they're tired. And sometimes melatonin helps to help people fall asleep, you know, during the day, during, you know, during the morning when they're trying to fall asleep, when normally you wouldn't at like 9am. Um, I think those are the main things that we think about. That's so interesting. I never even thought about transitioning that light to get to the point to where it's darker and darker for you. So um, those are great suggestions. I'm going to ask you for a few more suggestions on some uh, different topics. Can you give us some helpful hints on how to get to sleep quickly? So how to get to sleep quickly and how to stay asleep through the night. Um, You know, a lot of people have sleep problems. You know, you don't have that many sleep problems a lot of times when you're young, when you're a teenager in your 20s, and they become more and more, you know, of a problem as you get older. And there's a lot of common sense things have the bedroom dark, don't have a TV in the bedroom, don't be using your phone, don't do something really stimulating, you know, before you go to sleep, do something relaxing. But if you want to take two things, two tips away from this podcast to try to sleep better, 
these would be the two tips that I would put out there. One is keep to a very, very, very regular schedule. Don't try to vary it. You know, go to bed at 10 o'clock, wake up at 6 a.m. and try to do that every night and really try to stick to that. Not just on the weekdays, but the weekends also. Get your body used to the uh, time when you want to sleep. And that makes a difference. And the other is keeping your bedroom cool. You know, your body, as you sleep, the temperature of your body starts, goes down a little bit. And keeping your bedroom about 65 degrees seems to be optimal for trying to get a, a better night's sleep. Those are great hints. Yeah, very those, helpful. Those, those would be the two things I would really concentrate on. Okay. How about sleeping through the night? Is there anything that we can do to help that? Or are those suggestions already I think geared those, towards that? <laughs> I think those are the same suggestions, you know, keeping, you know, the, the your, your sleep schedule exactly the same or as close as possible night to night, as well as keeping your bedroom cool. And obviously keeping it dark, you know, not having things, you know, interrupt you. Um, but I, but I think those, that's what I would recommend. Okay. What about um, avoiding nightmares? So is there anything that we can do? So those don't happen at all? I think that's a, a tough problem. Um, sometimes different types of psychological counseling helps for that. There's a type called cognitive behavioral therapy. And we do have medications that sometimes help for that. You know, it's related mm-hmm. to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. There's medications that are sometimes used for that. And some of them are the same medications. Okay. That's interesting. All right. What about if you uh, sleep with someone who snores? Is there anything that you can do so you don't have to sleep in separate rooms? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot you can do. Obviously, snoring is <laughs> often worse on your back. So if the person can you know, stay on their side, oh. that, you know, that's, that would help. Um, some, they, they make these wedges that you can put under your mattress. So your head is a little bit higher up than the rest of your body. And snoring is improved with that. And then there's an oral, there's a oral appliance, we call it, like a bite plate. That's very good for snoring. Um, there are also a treatment for sleep apnea. The ones for treat, sleep apnea have to be custom made and are, and are expensive. The ones for snoring often do not have to be custom made, and they're pretty inexpensive. And I think the last thing is if you know someone you know, that snores a lot, Maybe they need to be treated, uh, tested for sleep apnea. Yeah. Now maybe the snoring is really just not snoring, but it's part of the sleep apnea, and they really need to be you know, tested for sleep apnea and treated for sleep apnea. And you know, I think most people know that CPAP is one of the treatments for sleep apnea. That does away with the snoring. Very interesting to see how it all ties back to something that maybe we need to investigate a little further, especially with your uh, sleep lab. So I really appreciate your time today and all the information that you shared with everyone. And um, I will make sure that I have links to the information on Altman's website for the sleep lab in the show notes once the episode is published. So everyone can uh, contact you if they would like to investigate their sleep a little bit uh, more in person. Good. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.